My name is Erin Macri, and I am a member of the BJSM editorial team. It is my pleasure to introduce two guests today. Dr. Lee Gable is a postdoctoral fellow working with Dr. Stephen Boyd in the University of Calgary's Bone Imaging Lab. Dr. Kate Ackerman is a sports medicine physician and medical director of the Female Athlete Program in the Division of Sports Medicine at Boston's Children's Hospital. They're both experts in bone health, and today we've brought them together to talk about the effects of long-duration spaceflight on bone health and exploring how these findings might inform clinical practice here on Earth. Welcome to you both. Hey, Erin. Thanks for having me. So it's pretty common knowledge, I think, for most of us that when people go into outer space, we lose bone density. But this recent publication of yours looked at flight duration and bone loss, but also looked at possible pre-flight predictors of bone loss. And before we talk about the study itself, Lee, I was hoping maybe you could paint a picture for us about what exactly happens when somebody goes onto the International Space Station in terms of trying to minimize bone loss when they go into outer space. Absolutely. So I thought I could give a, a brief background on the history of exercise in space and then tell you about what that looks like. So even before we had the technology to send people to space, there were concerns about how microgravity would impact health. So this isn't a new concern. When Russia launched the Mir space station in the mid to late 80s, they had a treadmill and a cycling device on Mir. However, it wasn't enough to present to prevent bone loss. And it, this was thought because there wasn't any resistance training on board. So what was called the interim resistive exercise device, uh, affectionately known as IRED, was developed and it went up to the International Space Station on that first expedition, which was in 2000. So the interim RED provided a load up to 136 kilos. However, it was also ineffective for protecting uh, and preventing bone loss. So that brings me to the equipment that's currently used on the space station, and it's called the Advanced Resistive Exercise Device, ARED, and that deployed in 2008, and it provides almost twice the loading of the interim device. ARED can provide loads up to 270 kilos, and it simulates using free weights, but with a bar or a cable. And so the resistance exercise is actually generated with a pair of vacuum cylinders that contain pistons. And it's that movement of the pistons within the vacuum cylinder that provides the resistance. So astronauts can perform, um, I think it's about 29 different exercises, um, including deadlifts, squats, heel raises, bench presses, abdominal curls, basically you name it. And for the bar exercises, you can load um, up to that max of the 270 kilos, but for the cable exercises, it's a, a lower load at around 68 kilos. So for anyone wanting to know what ARED looks like, it's probably easiest to just Google it. And um, there's this great video I love of NASA astronaut Victor Glover. He just returned back to Earth from his mission. So if you Google Victor Glover exercise, um, he posted a feed to, to his Twitter feed. And in the video, Victor is performing deadlifts. But then he just casually throws in a front flip. And so it gives a great <laughs> visual of, you know, the A-Red and what it looks like. And then as well as the fun that you can have in weightlessness. So by adding A-Red to the space station, this increased the resistance training. And it was really instrumental for improving the bone health of the crew members. So it helped reduce the amount of bone loss compared with the Mir space missions and to when there was only the interim RED on the space station. However, even with this daily resistance training, it's still not enough to prevent bone and muscle loss in all astronauts. So 
I thought I might quickly touch on the treadmill and the cycle ergometer that yeah. are up there. So there is a treadmill that's suspended within the opening of the floor. And uh, this minimizes the forces that are transferred to the space station, which is really important. So loading for the treadmill, uh, because you're weightless, um, it has to be provided by a body harness. And crew members are typically only loaded about, at about 70 to 80% of their body weight. And that's because there's a harness that is essentially pulling them towards the running surface. And it places a lot of pressure on the hips and the shoulders. So it can be a bit uncomfortable. But the treadmill does go up to a speed of about 20 kilometers per hour. And it can also be used passively. So where the crew members have to move the treadmill themselves. And then lastly, there's a cycle ergometer. So picture your stationary uh, bike at the gym or at home. Um, and that's what this looks like, except there is no seat because they're weightless. So crew members are restrained by a belt at the waist. So kind of like if you're in the backseat of your car, you have that belt across your waist um, that's attached to a vertical back plate. Um, and then the astronauts clip their shoes into the pedals and they have hands on the grip bars. Now, all crew members are fortunate enough to work with strength and conditional conditioning specialists to maintain their fitness before the mission. And then they work with the conditioning specialists uh, really closely throughout the whole mission uh, for prescribing exercise on orbit. Uh, what the first few weeks of exercise on the space station typically look like is just getting used to the weightless environment and getting used to the, the new exercise equipment. And then the resistance training program will progressively increase throughout the main part of the mission. And the last few weeks of spaceflight are spent preparing to come back to Earth. So the resistance training loads are typically kept high and the treadmill is favored over the cycle ergometer because it provides greater loading to the weight bearing regions of the body. Mm -hmm. And then just in terms of what a daily exercise session might look like, crew members are allotted um, between two and two and a half hours per day for exercise. But this also includes setting up and personal care time. So the actual exercise time is much lower. A typical day would include resistance exercise and aerobic exercise. So either the treadmill or the cycle ergometer. And for resistance exercises, because the lower body is most sensitive to weightlessness, it's squats, heel raises, and deadlifts that are prioritized. And then I guess just lastly about exercise in space as a scientist or a researcher working with these data, uh, we were fortunate enough to access the in-flight exercise logs. So we, we get data from the treadmill, the ergometer and the ARED. And because of this, we have a pretty good picture of how the crew members are exercising in flight. But what we don't have as clear a picture of is the training that they do before and after flight. So although the crew members are working really closely with their strength and conditioning specialists, there aren't the same detailed records of exercise frequency, intensity, duration, and type that we get in flight. However, there's great tracking of their functional fit fitness and their performance outcomes like muscle strength and VO2 max. Okay. So we can put a, a, a link of that video that you mentioned onto the sure. podcast notes. And then that way it's easier for, easier for get people to get images of what this looks like. That's amazing. So just a comment on what you've just said. It sounds yeah. to me like 270 kilograms is actually a lot of resistance, but I guess when you factor out your body weight, like, do we, do we have any idea how to compare the, the intensity on earth versus in space? So, so that's a 270 kilo load in 
um, a 1G G environment on Earth. So that's what it right. would, would feel like relative to Earth. So it is quite a bit of load, um, but, it, you know, it, it allows them, you know, when you think of real um, full body exercises, um, you know, something like deadlifts or squats where you want a lot of load, um, they're, they're able to get that with the ABED. Okay, thank you. In your study, in addition to using DEXA to measure bone density, you also used HRPQCT, and I know that that provides different information about bone. Kate, you've also worked extensively with both of these instruments, so can you maybe tell us what the advantages are of HRPQCT that it offers researchers in addition to traditional DEXA? Sure. So one of the big differences is that the HRPQCT or high resolution peripheral quantitative CT is going to allow us to see 3D images. So we get these very close slices that can be used measuring at the tibia and at the radius. So there is only available for peripheral sites. And we can see a lot more about the bone. We don't have that 2D that we get from aerial BMD from DEXA, but instead we get 3D, we get volumetric. And we can actually look at the different components of the bone, look at the cortex, look at the trabeculum, look at the number of trabeculi, look at the spacing. And so it gives us a better picture and often a more specific picture than just DEXA alone. Great. I think that I would have to research this a lot before I could actually say HRPQCT with ease because that actually is a mouthful for me. It rolls right off the tongue. <laughs> so Lee, now that we have a bit more background information, can you tell us more about your actual study, what you did and what you learned about long duration flights and bone loss? Sure. So uh, to give a brief intro to the study, uh, the study is called T-Bone. Um, it stands for trabecular bone or three-dimensional bone. And we followed 17 astronauts before and after their approximate six-month missions to the International Space Station. And we used HR, PQCT, to understand how prolonged unloading impacts their bone health. So um, for sort of general findings, we saw three to 4% declines in their bone strength and their bone mineral density at the tibia. So sort of right above where your ankle is over that course of that mission. So that's about a half a percent to 1% loss um, per month. And to put that sort of loss into perspective, during normal aging in say 40 to 60 year old men, we'd be seeing losses on the order of about 0.1% per year. And in postmenopausal women, we'd be saying, seeing the same loss that astronauts experience per month, but over a year. So bone loss from a typical space mission represents at least a decade, up to several decades of normal age-related bone loss. And then to frame that in more of a sports medicine context, if we compare space weight bone loss with that of a lower leg bone stress injury, which Dr. Ackerman is going to speak to, maximal bone loss after injury during recovery might be on the order of about 1% loss of bone mineral density. So studying adaptation to space flight really gives us this exceptional insight into bone's ability to change. Next, although missions to the space station are typically six months in duration, the crew in our study were on missions that range from about four months to just under seven months. So we were actually able to look at how the length of the mission impacted bone, bone loss. And as one would expect, the longer the astronaut spent on orbit, the greater their bone loss was. Now we also studied how the radius adapted to space flight, so near the wrist, and we didn't see many changes at the wrist. The radius is much better protected in space because it's non-weight bearing on Earth. Now, the second part of our study was trying to determine if we could predict who is at greatest risk of bone loss prior to spaceflight. 
If so, we could better tailor countermeasures, a term that's used um, for strategy, strategies to keep astronauts healthy. So I'm coming from an exercise physiology background, and I was interested in how exercise, both before spaceflight and during spaceflight, impacted bone loss. We had astronauts complete a questionnaire before spaceflight about their aerobic exercise, so their running and their cycling habits, along with typical resistance training regimens. And then we were able to compare those self-reported measures to the in-flight exercise data that are automatically logged by the ARED device and from the treadmill and the ergometer. And what we found was that astronauts who exercised the most before flight actually tended to lose more bone during the mission. So specifically, crew members with higher running volume, so more hours spent running per week, before flight saw the greatest losses in their trabecular bone mineral density. And from the data, it was pretty clear that those higher volume runners prior to flight just weren't able to maintain that volume of running in flight, whether that be to the time constraints or to the discomfort of the treadmill. So we know that bone adapts to changes in the loading environment. So essentially an astronaut who typically spends a few hours running each week on Earth is heading to a zero G environment, which in itself is bad for bone. And then on top of that, they aren't able to maintain their pre-flight exercise volume. So it's almost a double whammy to the weight bearing regions. Now, in terms of resistance training, the findings were pretty similar in that the crew members who were able to increase their training volume on orbit were more likely to preserve their bone. So these were crew members who increased the repetitions of squats and deadlifts performed each week relative to what they were doing before spaceflight. And then one thing I'll mention is that keeping good records of pre-flight exercise habits might help us to tailor these in-flight exercise training regimens. And as I mentioned before, the in-flight exercise is really well recorded. Uh, the ARED automatically logs the reps, the sets, and the loads. But this pre-flight training is less well documented, but it should be because for bone adaptation, it's really the change in the loading environment that matters. And so the last piece of our study that I'd like to touch on is um, that we examined biomarkers of bone turnover. So we collected urine and serum biomarkers of bone resorption and bone formation before flight, as well as in flight. And we found that astronauts with higher levels of bone turnover before spaceflight were more likely to lose more bone mineral density and strength during the flight. So these were astronauts with greater concentrations of bone resorption and bone formation markers before, before flight. So now we don't really know the cause of the elevated biomarkers before flight. It can be related to a whole number of factors, including age, sex, nutrition, and medications, just to name a few. But I will mention that it wasn't the high exercisers who also had the elevated bone turnover markers. In fact, that would have made for a very nice and clean story. But whatever the cause of these elevated biomarkers before flight, those astronauts who were in the higher state of bone turnover went into this weightless environment where their bone resorption was just exacerbated. So our study suggests that looking at these biomarkers before spaceflight might be another way that we could help predict the individuals who need just more tailored countermeasures and to help them prevent their bone loss. So Kate, following the publication of Lee's study, you were the lead author of an editorial exploring the relevance of Lee's findings to sports medicine here on Earth. So you drew some examples from your previous work looking at bone density following bone stress injuries, and then mentioned a couple of other um, studies uh, in ACL injuries. So maybe can you start by just summarizing those findings for the listener? 
Absolutely. So we really found this article uh, that Lee was responsible for fascinating because in the sports medicine world, we often deal with injuries that typically require someone to be non-weight bearing for some amount of time. And one of the clinical questions is really determining how long that should be. And so we were looking at bone stress injuries. We looked at the tibia specifically um, in this paper where the, the lead author was Christy Pop and um, the senior author was Mary Buckstein. We did HRP QCT measurements in females who had had tibial bone stress injuries and followed them over the course of a year. And what was really fascinating to us was that HRP QCT measurements um, kept going down and were at a nadir at about 12 weeks. So if you think about a tibial stress injury, typically people are back to exercising at that 12 week mark. And here was the time now that we're seeing that the HRPQCT was really low. So not surprising now that we knew that those results occurred, um, we weren't so surprised that many of our athletes over the course of the year had another bone stress injury. So if you think of it from a clinical context, these are people who are getting back to activity, they're doing more running, their bone is weakened and they're getting back to their activity. So then we divided out the athletes who had gotten another stress injury versus those who did not. And we saw, we saw some differences in terms of stiffness and failure load in those that got re-injured. So when I put my clinical hat back on, it really made me think differently about how I treat bone stress injuries. And we typically say, oh, you should be in an air cast boot for three weeks and then be in a comfortable sneaker. And at six weeks, you're back to running. And then we dial up the activity. And so now I go much more slowly with my athletes. And it's unfortunate because obviously they want to be going back more quickly because they've missed a lot of time. But we certainly don't want them to get into this cycle of recurrent injury, which is something we do see with a lot of our runners. Um, the other examples are the things that we're seeing in the literature. There was a study using HRPQCT in people who were non-weight-bearing for various surgical reasons. So they were non-weight-bearing for about six weeks. And um, this is a study by Kazakia. And they also found that the bone quality, the HRPQCT measurements went down, stiffness and failure load were affected, um, and they didn't return to normal even at 13 weeks post-weight-bearing. So we're seeing this in other injuries as well. And then using DEXA, which we talked about, only getting 2D images, but using DEXA, Lou did a study looking at people at an ACL uh, reconstruction or um, basically repairs. And they basically found that of 62 males who had had ACL surgeries using all different techniques, those people also had decreases in their bone density, both at the knee and at the hip. And one year later, even at the hip, the bone density wasn't recovered. So we clearly need to be doing more in terms of weight bearing and doing some kind of intervention to help retain or regain the bone that people are losing after they get injured. So I guess that brings us to the next question. What do we know about the actual capacity to recover? Um, and does it, does it depend on how the bone is lost in the first place? Is it, there's something about like what happened, the quality of the trabeculi when you lose bone? Can you maybe speak to that a little bit, Kate? I think that's one of the million dollar questions. You know, sometimes we think, okay, is it because there are fewer trabeculi? But then in other studies, we see it's actually the cortex that has more porosity um, that's developing. So this is where we need to be doing more of these HRPQCT studies with loading um, protocols and study them longitudinally. We have very few studies that are looking at these things longitudinally, which is why this space article was so fascinating. 
Yeah. And, and Lee, have you, are you aware of what we, like, what do we know about the potential to recover after spaceflight? Yeah. So we're actually following up our 17 astronauts for the year, during the year after they've um, returned to earth to see if the bone recovers and then how that bone recovers. So uh, that data should be coming out shortly, but the, the worrisome um, from the bone perspective is that um, if you have unloading for a prolonged period of time, the trabeculae do thin. Um, and uh, it's it's called spongy bone because it does look a little bit like a sponge on the inside. Um, But if the trabeculae thin to the extent that they dissociate from one another and they kind of break apart from one another, there's actually no biological mechanism for them to reconnect. So when they return to earth, they might be able to regain bone density, but the actual structure underlying it is going to look different. And we don't know if it's going to be as mechanically sound. So those are some of the things that we're going to be looking at as we follow up these astronauts into the future. I guess coming into the last question, the home run, I just want to talk a little bit about the clinical implications and and maybe what we need to do in the future as far as looking at how how we can um, answer some of these questions. Um, It strikes me that probably what we've learned thus far about osteoporosis and sort of bone building exercises is something that we're that you both are probably thinking about incorporating into rehab in these younger athletes with bone stress injuries or in people when they've come back from space flight. Um, maybe Kate, can you talk about some of the what, what that would might look like? Well, I touched on this a little bit earlier, but I think that decreasing the length of time of immobilization is really important. This is what we've been learning over time. And I think we're going to find that more and more, if we can get people to be ambulating in some sort of way earlier after injury, this is going to really help bone density. And then we absolutely need to be doing these prospective studies to see what kind of changes are happening and do other types of imaging like HRPQCT and not just DEXA. Yeah. And and what do you think a bone loading protocol might actually look like? Partial weight bearing, full weight bearing, and then when possible, start doing more jumping and multi-directional loading. We know this from the sports literature in terms of normal bone accrual and what sort of things help bone in general during adolescence and growth. So I think applying more of those kind of approaches after injury are going to be appropriate. And Lee, let's get your final thoughts. I think you've talked a little bit about not um, about the fact that up till now, we haven't really been closely monitoring pre-flight exercise programs. Do you have some thoughts on both the pre-flight during and post, I think all three? Sure. So I think from a a research standpoint, in order to get a more complete picture of how exercise training prior to spaceflight and afterwards impacts bone loss and recovery, um, if we had a device-based measure of physical activity um, or of ground reaction forces, that would really complement the on-orbit exercise data that we're able to access. Um, And then lastly, I just wanted to say, I think Kate really hit the nail on the head in terms of um, an exercise intervention. Um, I mean, if we could design an an exercise intervention um, to add to the space station, it would definitely be a jumping exercise. Like jumping provides that high impact dynamic loading that bone really responds to. But the challenge on the space station is implementing that without shaking the station, like literally shaking the station. (laughs) The vibrations, yeah, they have to be isolated somehow. So I know um, there are engineers and scientists working on a next generation exercise device. And I think it could be really beneficial for bone and muscle health if this could include a jumping type um, exercise. And for the folks who had higher biomarkers pre-flight 
and are at risk for bone loss. Is exercise the treatment for them or do they need a different approach, do you think? Sure. So uh, tailoring exercise um, may um, and, and certainly does help. And although I'll admit that my bias is towards exercise as medicine, um, <laughs> there will likely be a... Getting that plug totally, in. <laughs> um, there probably is going to be a role for pharmaceuticals in preventing bone loss in long-duration space travelers. And particularly when we think to the future for space travel and these deep space exploration, exploration missions, um, we have recent work that looks at using uh, bisphosphonate, so an anti-resorptive along with exercise uh, during spaceflight, and it shows real promise for suppressing bone resorption and preventing bone loss. So now not everybody is gonna be a candidate for this, but if we're able to target or identify you know, ahead of time who's at greatest risk for bone loss, then maybe we can target these measures appropriately. Any final thoughts from either of you that you'd like to have as a take home message for the listener? I just think it's fascinating that we can be looking at what's going on with this research that Lee and her colleagues are doing for astronauts and think of creative ways that we can be applying it to so many of the rest of us trying to not break our bones or heal our bones and be able to continue with exercise on Earth. Yeah, great. Yeah, and I think it's just fantastic um, that these crew members are, you know, letting us study them in so many different respects because the type of changes we're seeing um, just can't be seen on Earth in any sort of scenario. So um, it, it really is, from a scientific perspective, um, really unique and exciting. Great. Well, thank you both so much today for your time. And thank you, the listener. And we hope that you have a physically active day. 